So have you ever used a metalloscope? Now, if you don't know what a metalloscope is, that's all right, because until this week, I didn't know what a metalloscope was either. I guarantee you, though, that some of you may have used the sequel to the metalloscope, and I'm fairly confident that all of us have seen the sequel to a metalloscope. And where do I think you would have seen it? Well, I think you've probably seen the sequel to a metalloscope in the hand of a shirtless guy with a straw hat with a little shovel hanging off the belt loop of his Hawaiian shorts. Yes, the sequel to the metalloscope is the metal detector. Now, I'm not talking about the metal detector that you'd have to go to if you were going to a Yanni concert. Not that type of security, but actually we're talking about something completely different. We're talking about the kind that you would see somebody have out on the beach trying to score some vacation treasure underneath the sand. You know, you've seen them before. The end of it is kind of like a a big, huge Frisbee, and then there's kind of like a golf club thing that goes up, and then there's a, a little box on the top. So how does a metal detector work? Well, in simplest terms, because that's the only way I know how to think or talk, the little round Frisbee thing spots something under the ground, and it sends a little message up the golf club thing to a little box at the top, and that little box says, hey, there's something down here. Now, the the truth of the matter is the the newer ones probably have a little box that has some kind of digital thing on it. But the older ones, an older model, has more like a, a dial. You know, the kind of thing that maybe you see in your, in your car, the, the gas gauge. It's a little dial. It has a little wand, and when something strikes underneath the Frisbee thing, it, it kind of moves from the left to the right. And if you, if you really have something underneath there, then that little wand, man, it'll jump. I mean, it'll fly from the left to the right. And that metal detector is telling you, man, you need to get your little, your little shovel out because I think we've hit pay dirt. Well, pay dirt is a bit of what I hope we will hit in the weeks to come as we look into God's Word. We're going to be looking at the very first church, the first church. And we're going to try to figure out what this church was like. What what was the first church like? What were the first church members like? How did they think? What did they do? And why in the world should we care? I mean, why should we care about some 2,000-year-old church? Why does it matter what they did and who they were. Well, here's one main reason why they matter. This church only exists because of that church. In fact, any church that claims the gospel of Jesus Christ, they exist because of the first church. What does that mean? Well, see, the first church, they didn't keep Jesus to themselves. They didn't keep the gospel to themselves. They made sure that the gospel got to me, and they made sure that the gospel got to you. So at the very least, that's a pretty good reason for us to at least take a glance at the first church. But what we're going to find as we look at the first church is that there's not this big, huge, gigantic, fancy, hip, cool thing that we're going to see. You know, the first pastor didn't have great hair and cool skinny jeans. The first church didn't have a a fantastic campus with, with really nice buildings. In fact, what we'll find is that the first church was very, very ordinary. But in being ordinary, that is exactly what made them extraordinary. So what made the first church What made their dial jump? Well, let's find out. 
Acts chapter 2, beginning with the very first part, part A. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. The first church did not have King James Bibles. They didn't have New International Version Bibles. They didn't have Life Application Bibles. They didn't have New Jersey Donut Maker Study Bible. You know, I mean, you can get a study Bible for just about anything today. They didn't have all of these different Bibles. What they had was the Old Testament, the scrolls, and then they had these guys who had spent almost every waking minute of their life with Jesus. And what did they learn from spending their time with Jesus? Well, Jesus told them about the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. This is the Son of God telling them about the kingdom of God. Now, that's a pretty good education. But Jesus wasn't shooting from the hip when he discipled the apostles. He wasn't shooting from the hip when he poured into these men. It wasn't a new plan he was creating. He was fulfilling, and he was continuing, and he was fueling, and he was invigorating the plan that began before the foundations of the world. Jesus of Nazareth was brutally executed on a cross outside of Jerusalem. He was dead for three days. He came back to life completely and totally after three days. And one of the things he did after he came back to life was he joined up with two guys who were walking down a road on their way to a place called Emmaus. And Jesus wanted these two guys to understand the gospel. And this is what he said to them to help them understand. Luke chapter 24, verse 27. Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself and all the scriptures. So Jesus walks all the way back to the beginning. He says, all these things that have been written down, all those things were pointing to me. All of these things were coming back to me. So does that mean that all we need is the Old Testament and we can just ignore the New Testament? No, that's not what it means at all. Why would a religion that's based on the person of Jesus Christ not include a written account of what Jesus actually said and did when he was on the earth? Now we have these first four books of the New Testament. We call them the Gospels. And they are the, the foundation, so to speak, of all of the New Testament. But they were based on the apostles' teaching. See, this first church, they may not have had a Bible with them, but the apostles' teaching became the Bible. The apostles' teaching became the Gospels. The apostles' teaching became the foundation of all the other books in the New Testament. Someone might say, but do we need those other books? I mean, the Gospels, those things are about Jesus, but, you know, the other stuff, there's, there's other things in those other books. Do we really need those books. You know what I love? I love a basic recipe. Love it. I love a basic casserole recipe. I love a basic cake recipe, a basic cookie recipe. You know why? Because you get that basic recipe and then you can do whatever you want. Man, I love that. You know, you can put in some chocolate chips or some pecans or some cinnamon or whatever else. Now, I wouldn't advise putting chocolate chips in your casserole. That may not be a good idea. But, you know, one time I did put cinnamon in a pot of chili. I mean, it was good. I mean, I, I, mean, I loved it. No one else ate it. But, I mean, I thought it was fantastic. So, so I love the idea of, of having a, a basic recipe because there's so much that you can do, but you need the basics. You see, every single person, every single family, 
every house, every school, every government, every church, every business, every house. I mean, I mean everything in our life, everything has basics. There are basics to all that we do. And so when we look at the Gospels in the New Testament, we have these fantastic documentaries about Jesus. And then the, the rest of the New Testament, well, they're the basics of what was happening in the early church, the basics of, of how they thought and what they did and how they lived and the kind of hope that they had. And we're supposed to use those same basics in our lives today. Yes, things look different at almost every single church in this community. But the basics of the gospel bring the church to some of the same foundational things. So we need all of the Bible. But somebody might say, well, hey, why don't we just add some books? I mean, hey, man, this is modern time. Man, things have changed. I mean, that stuff in the Bible, I mean, it's nice, but that's a long time ago. And we're living in a different age, so there needs to be some updating. There needs to be some, some new additions to the Bible. Well, for basically the last 1,600 years, Christians have affirmed and agreed upon the 66 books known as the canon of Scripture. Now, this canon isn't like a canon that you're going to find at a historic battlefield. No, this canon is a, a measuring rod. It's a, it's a ruler. So, how did the books of the Bible get to where they are? How did the measuring go about? Well, the Old Testament books weren't that hard. I mean, first of all, the, the Jews were fantastic historians. They were really diligent at process and, and preservation. And so they were good at keeping up with what needed to be kept up with. And then in the New Testament... All but two books of the Old Testaments are referred to in some way, shape, or form. And even Jesus spoke highly in several different ways about the Old Testament. So the Old Testament was, was fairly easy to measure up. The New Testament was a little bit different. And they measured the, the New Testament books by basically two questions. Is this an eyewitness account of Jesus? Or is it based directly on an eyewitness account of Jesus? And then secondly, is does it hold up? Is it consistent with what Jesus said? And is it consistent with what the Old Testament says? But then there was another factor that sometimes it went into deciding. And that factor went something like this. Would you die for this letter? You see, in the early church, the, the books that they were fighting over, the letters they were fighting to, to study and read, were the kind of letters that might get you arrested, might get you persecuted, you might even be killed for being connected to God's New Testament. It's a good thing those days are past, right? Sadly, they haven't. Today, right now, around the world, there are still people being persecuted for connecting themselves to the Bible. There are still people who actually lose their lives for being connected to the truth of God's Word, a book that many church-going people only think about for an hour or two on Sundays. Vaughn Roberts grew up thinking the Bible was full of myths, legends, fairy tales. And then he read the Gospel of Matthew. And he was compelled by the truth about Jesus. And God saved him, and he put his faith in Christ. He's a pastor now in Oxford, England. This is what he says about the Gospel writer, Dr. Luke. He tells us at the beginning of his Gospel that he went to great efforts to make sure that what he was writing was based on eyewitness testimony. He's claiming to be a very serious historian. Now, you could say he was just lying to persuade people to follow Jesus, but why lie like that when you know that what you're saying matters very much? If you're claiming that Jesus is the truth, why base all of that on a lie? 
especially given that most of the early Christians suffered greatly for their faith. And a number of them even died. Many people in human history have died for things that are not true. But would you die for what you knew wasn't true because you'd invented it? Would you die for a book that you made up? It seems like the most foolish thing that a human could even comprehend. And so the canon of Scripture, the 66 books of the Old Testament and New Testament, the the canon is full of historical affirmation. It's full of consistent eyewitness account. It's full of, of radical social confirmation as well. But here's the thing. I cannot force you to believe that the 66 books of the Old and New Testament are God's Word. I can't do it. I can't force you to believe that the the canon of Scripture is really God's book. But I would plead with you to do what Vaughn Roberts did. Go read the book of Matthew. Go go read Matthew or Mark or or Luke or John. And and I pray that, that God would help you to see that the truth about Jesus is so real. That he would open your eyes to this beauty of this Savior. And that he would help you to see also that this is not just some old book with old ideas and old ways, but that the Bible is actually what your soul is thirsty and hungry for. The Bible contains the answers and the hope that your soul is desperate for, even if you don't know it. The first church, the early church, they were thirsty and they were hungry for the truth about Jesus. They wanted to know everything they could. They wanted the Word of God. They wanted the Bible. Now, that doesn't mean they wanted to eat a book when I say they are hungry and thirsty. It just means that they had just gotten saved, they were super excited about Jesus, and they wanted to know what to do next. But here's the thing. They didn't really know Jesus. I mean, they knew about Jesus. Most of them got saved about 10 days after Jesus ascended to heaven. So some of them may have even seen Jesus or heard Jesus teach, but but they knew about him. But now he was their Savior. Now he was their Redeemer. Now he was their Lord. He was their King. And they wanted to know more about Jesus. They had questions. What was Jesus like? What did he teach? How did he treat people? What kind of miracles did he perform? What does he want us to do now? What does it mean that he was God? And where were they going to find answers to questions like that? Well, they could find some of the passion and purpose of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament scrolls. Some of it was there. But you know the best place would be to find out from the people that spent the most time with him. You see, Jesus didn't have 120 disciples in his group. He had 12 And at least 11 of them took the truth of God, soaked it up, and spread it to the world. Imagine this. Imagine you're in a Bible study with 120 people. You're in a big room somewhere. In that Bible study, you're going to be distracted. I mean, really. You know, maybe you might be distracted with the, the heat and your air conditioning. You know, maybe it's too hot or too cold or, or maybe the vents are blowing or, or whatever. You, you could be distracted. You might be distracted because your BFF, she's texting you about all her drama at work while you're sitting there in the Bible study. Or maybe you're going to be distracted because you keep checking the updated score from the game on your phone. 
Or maybe you're distracted because the mouth breather behind you sounds like a foghorn, you know, and you, and you can't hear anything because of the way this guy's breathing. Or maybe the lady in front of you, she's the class crane. You know the class crane is, right? The lady who is craning her neck to see what everybody's wearing and what everybody's doing. There's, there's one in every crowd. <laughs> or, or maybe, maybe you're distracted because you didn't eat. And all you can think about is going to Zesto or Rushes when Bible study is over. You have no clue what they're saying about Jesus. See, it's easy to be distracted, especially if you're in a room of 120 people. Now compare that to a Bible study with 12 people all day, every day, for about three years. So you're going to get more than just the outline of the lesson there. You're going to have a deep relationship. You see, Jesus set an incredible example for us to follow. Small is strong. We said that several times in the last few weeks. We're going to keep saying it. You see, there is something about the church getting stronger by getting smaller. Now, that doesn't mean sometimes what we think, oh, we should just get rid of the church and you know, just do away with everything. What it means is this. It means that I can't be best buddies and BFFs with 300 people. And guess what? Neither can you. But we can have on purpose Jesus-centered relationships with about 10 to 20 people. See, we can focus on the truth of relationships. You see, the early church, they were strong in the smallness. See, they weren't strong because that is fantastic Methodologies. They weren't strong because they had these great theories on how to start a church and, and how to grow a church. It wasn't about church growth. They were strong because a small group of guys spent a lot of time with Jesus, soaked up everything they could, and then they gave it to the world. See, the first church was strong because they were devoted to one theme, one passion, one purpose. It came across in all of the teaching of the early church. And then went something like this. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. See, the teaching of the early church, it was so focused on the glory of God in the person of Jesus Christ. And these people, they were continually devoted to that teaching. Now, we know what it means to be continually devoted, right? Some of you are continually devoted to your team. I mean, you paint your face on game day. You buy little team jerseys for all your pets, even a little waterproofing for your goldfish. I mean, you are there. You are continually devoted. Some of you are continually devoted to Sheely's Barbecue on Monday night, and you know exactly who you are. Some of you are continually devoted to your favorite TV shows. You know, these TV shows that really, really help you to, to gain knowledge and understanding for the really important things in life, like, you know, people who are trying to find a date. You know, and, and people who are trying to find a, a good compost toilet for their tiny house. And, and you know, people who are, are trying to find some way to, to spend their lottery money. You know, the really, really important things in life. You know, we know how to be continually devoted. We have an idea of what it means to be committed to something. Marshall Siegel says this about the first church. I love it. These disciples developed 
real rhythms of living together in Jesus and for Jesus. It wasn't a two-hour routine reserved for one morning per week. It was a week-long effort to keep each other in the faith and to be a winsome witness for the world around them. I love that. A winsome witness for the world. How winsome have you been for Jesus this week? Have you been a helper that's been helping people to see the, the truth and the beauty of Jesus Christ? Or have you been a grumpy, whiny, pushy, rude, apathetic, standoffish, silly, materialistic, or, or worldly stumbling block to someone seeing the truth and the beauty of Jesus? Winsome is a good thing for us to shoot for. Siegel goes on to say what the early church has to do with us today, with this church and really any church that claims the name of Jesus. He writes, our love for another is a lifestyle, not a weekly activity. See, the teaching that the apostles were given, it wasn't just a weekly activity. They were continually devoted to it. See, the teaching of the Word of God in the church is is not just a Sunday morning weekly activity. Yes, I preach the gospel, but I preach the gospel to myself. And I preach the gospel to people inside the church. And I preach the gospel to people outside of the church. But here's the thing. You preach the gospel. You preach the gospel to yourself. And you preach the gospel to people inside of the church. And you preach the gospel to people outside of the church. See, this is what it means to live as a Christian. We are all gospel preachers. We are all preaching the gospel, and we start with ourselves. Every day, all day, we fight through all the things in life, and we constantly try to remind our own heart and our own mind over and over and over again, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then as we preach to ourselves, we whisper a little deeper, behold, the Lamb of God who loves me. He loves me, the lamb. He loves me, and he has taken away the penalty of my sin. And we preach that over and over and over to ourselves. We don't wait for Sunday to hear that again. The love of Jesus Christ was not a weekly activity. The love of Jesus Christ is not a weekly activity. It is a 24-7, 365-day constant flow of grace into our life. And likewise, our activity, our love toward him should not be a, a weekly activity, but a lifestyle. It should define who we are. The early church, they were continually devoted to making sure that their lifestyle was centered on Jesus Christ. The apostles' teaching, that was their Bible. Our Bible is the Bible. You see, God loves you and loves me, and he's kind to you, and he's kind to me in such a way that he made sure that his truth was written down. He made sure that we had something to turn to. See, I'm not dependent on you to help me find Jesus. And you're not dependent on me for you to find Jesus. See, I'm not dependent on a TV preacher. I'm not dependent on the Pope. I'm not dependent on any particular church. I'm not dependent on any particular denomination. I'm not dependent on seeing an image of baby Jesus and a grilled cheese sandwich to help me find Christ. 
See, God in his kindness, he has given us his word so that we can find Jesus all the time. So beware of any person or any church that says to you that the Bible is just a book of fundamental legalistic rules that you have to follow. Beware of that. Likewise, beware of anyone who says to you, well, hey, the first church didn't have a Bible, so we don't need one either. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23 says this, For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is through the living and enduring word of God. Peter was an eyewitness to Jesus Christ. He saw Jesus. And Peter says that the way a person is born again, the way the person, a person is saved is through the enduring word of God. So in the Old Testament, God spoke his word. And eventually that spoken word was written down. And then in the New Testament, he began to continue to give his word through the life of Jesus. And he gave his word through the spirit-filled writings of the letters of the New Testament. All of this happened because of how God was dispensing his word. So when we see the enduring word of God, what we could say is this. God spoke his word and then he made sure for our sake that it was written down so that we could see and know the truth. Wayne Grudem says this. Ultimately, it is neither our arguments nor our life example that will bring new life to an unbeliever, but the powerful words of God himself. I have a friend who for the last 16 years has been helping me see how powerful the words of God really are. His name is Elton Jones. Elton was the chairman of the deacons at the first church that I was the senior pastor at, Allander Baptist Church in Allander, North Carolina, Bertie County, over in the eastern part of the state. I can't remember for sure, but I'm pretty sure the very first thing Elton ever said to me when he shook my hand was, do you preach from the Bible? This was his main question for me. I've never had a conversation with Elton that he didn't talk about the Bible, ever. He's always in God's Word. Elton reads the Bible like someone with a spiritual metal detector, and he can't wait for the dial to jump. He wants to discover something new about the grace and the glory of God. And never have I seen this more in his life than I did on March 17, 2001. There was an accident out at his chicken farm. By the time I got there, there was trucks and ambulances all over the place. I got over to, to where Elton was and and he was on the ground. He was surrounded by emergency personnel. And, and he saw me and called me over. And as soon as I got up next to Elton, the first thing I realized is that both of his legs from the knees down were, were gone. There was an accident with some equipment. He got caught inside one of the chicken houses. He crawled from inside the chicken house, out the back, all the way up to the front, just so he could find somewhere that somebody might hear his shouts. For help. So I get there, Elton looks at me, and with calm eyes and a little curl of a smile, he says, man, this is something, isn't it? He says, hey, Dal, how about run to my truck, get my Bible out of the glove compartment, and just, just come read to me. So Mike, one of our guys in the church, ran and got the Bible, and, and I knelt down next to Elton, and he said, hey, let's just start in Isaiah 53. Are you know, anywhere you want to read. Elton spent 40 days in the hospital fighting infection and healing. 
When he got out of the hospital, it wasn't long before he was fitted with prosthetic legs for, for each leg. And he spent the last 15 years going all over the world on mission trips. He's been to Haiti, I think, twice, been to Canada a number of times. When, when Katrina hit, he was down there several times just trying to help with the relief efforts. His wife, Gail, one of my dearest friends, one of my buddies that I love talking theology with, Gail caught the same kind of passion for ministry and for missions. She's been overseas for the gospel too, but, but maybe the most profound thing that she did was she helped her local church catch a vision for the nations. To catch a vision for, for getting Jesus outside of the church and down to the other corners of the neighborhood and to the far corners of the world. Elton and Gail's son, Landry, changed my life one summer riding mountain bikes around the farmlands of eastern North Carolina. Because he showed me what it means to be a young man that desires more than just the American dream. That desires more than, than just a job and just a house and, and just a benefit package and just a membership to the gym. Landry graduated from UNC Chapel Hill and then he spent years with Campus Crusade in Argentina helping people find Jesus. He met his sweet wife, Mary, down there. Elton and Gail's daughter, Jessica, thought Landry had a pretty good path. So she followed it. She graduated from UNC Chapel Hill. She went with Campus Crusade to Argentina. She helped college students find Jesus. And in recent years, she's been helping international refugees find help and hope in the gospel. All of those things happened after March 17, 2001. So an accident that some people would say would destroy a family actually intensified their devotion to the Lamb of God who took away their sin. And I'm convinced that the primary reason that has happened is because Elton has spent his life leading his family to believe and to love the Word of God. They have been continually devoted to the Scriptures by Elton's leadership. Elton's funeral is at 3 o'clock today. Something happened Wednesday. We don't know what. He's been driving ever since he got his legs, but they think maybe a heart attack or some medical issue, and, and Elton didn't survive. Elton has been calling me for 14 years and leaving me voicemails, and all he does is read the Bible. <laughs> he just leave me these long voicemails of, you know, First Chronicles, you know. Or he'll leave me quotes or commentary of somebody. And then he learned how to text. <laughs> and Elton has been texting me several times a month. Same thing, mostly just scripture, sometimes some commentary, sometimes some quotes. Then I texted my friend Bill Fister and said, hey man, I just want to let you know about Elton. He knew Elton. He just texted back. He goes, you know what? You guys loved each other. I'm sad that, that I can't make it to the funeral today, but, but the reality is, is that Landry and Jessica are speaking at their dad's funeral and they're going to make much of Jesus and I'm happy they'll be the voice for the gospel there. Karen and I are going to try to go up soon and just love on Gail and hug her and laugh a little bit. But Elton texted me Wednesday, just hours before he went to be with Jesus. I don't know if this is a quote. I don't know if he was reading this from somewhere or if this is him. But this was his last message to me. According to Matthew 13, 11, the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you. 
as a spiritual being, you have the potential to grow in your personal knowledge of the Lord every day that you live. We can enter the spiritual realm through reading the Bible, prayer, worship, openness to God's Holy Spirit daily. He is there. We just need to yield to the Spirit. We must commit ourselves to a regimen of regular Bible study to be a curious Christian, not just a hit-or-miss basis. The Holy Spirit loves a totally committed person. My friend Elton is one of the most ordinary people I've ever known. But his love for God's word has made him one of the most extraordinary people I've ever known. He really has been a true first church Christian. He has been continually devoted to God's word. And the secrets of the kingdom of heaven that he texted me about Wednesday morning, they are no longer secrets to Elton. I pray that that his life, I pray that the life of the first church, I pray that the gospel itself will stir us to want to be continually devoted to the truth about Jesus and that we would be people who read the Bible waiting for the dial to jump.